when we really embrace that discomfort, it's something that because it's very rare, it's something that's that's magnetic, right? So when people see that happen in someone, it's automatically like, well, what is that person doing? Or what does that person have? Because it's, it's something that's so rare, you don't see it a lot. And so when someone does embrace that uncomfortableness, you know, sometimes it can launch them into the stratosphere because it's like this person is like a superhuman, right. you know? This is Epic Ordinary Lives Podcast. Welcome to episode nine of Epic Ordinary Lives, the podcast that seeks to glorify the elements of life that are worthy of glorifying, the moments where people have the willingness, the courage, and the vulnerability to put themselves in uncomfortable positions that yield growth that set an example for all of us on our own path. Because when you see someone else doing something hard or inspiring or amazing, it can be one of the most motivating things in the world to do the same in your own life. At least that has been my experience. This week's guest is no different. This is another true smorgasbord podcast and another jack-of-all-trades human being. His name is Seth Budai. Seth Budai is both a student and teacher of human fitness and movement ecology, a level 2 MoveNat certified trainer, a black belt in kung fu, and an avid practitioner of the Wim Hof Method. He leads movement-focused workshops in Knoxville, Tennessee, and occupies the personal training, group training, and online training spaces. When Seth is not in the gym, he spends his time cold plunging, barefoot hiking, and occasionally swinging from trees in the Smoky Mountains with his beautiful wife and their Siberian husky. Seth's calling in life is to better understand how the body and mind work synergistically to create inner harmony and produce optimal health. I absolutely love this conversation. It is a discussion about physical strength as well as mental strength, of a willingness to be vulnerable and what it requires to be vulnerable in this life. One of Seth's main disciplines is the practice of MoveNat. And in the course of this episode, if you've never heard of MoveNat before, you will learn a lot about it. And it might entice you to check it out in person. Seth will actually be teaching a one-day MoveNat Elements Workshop in Knoxville, Tennessee on June 24th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Iron Tribe Fitness, his gym. The one-day Elements Workshops are intended to give you the most important basics that you can practice in your daily life. 
It says we will focus on areas that need the most improvement and we will teach you routines that you can use and practice at home in 20 or 30 minutes a day. We will go more deeply into what the workshop will entail in part two of Seth's episodes, but part one is an excellent beginning. And if you find yourself interested in this, you can check out this workshop in at the end of June. If you're interested in signing up for this workshop or would like to just reach out to Seth, you can also contact him directly by emailing him at sbudai88 at gmail.com. That is the letter S-B-U-D-A-I 88 at gmail.com. You can also find him on Facebook or you can go to his Instagram, which is Bear, B-A-R-E underscore Lee, L-Y, human. Again, Bear underscore Lee, human. If you want to support Epic Ordinary Lives, the quickest and best way to do it right now is to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your platform is. And if you're feeling very kind to write a review on your platform, those go a long way to improve the rankings of Epic Ordinary Lives. So without further ado, please enjoy my highly philosophical and wide-ranging conversation with Seth Budai here on Epic Ordinary Lives. There are certain friendships that you make that... You might never would have had you not taken one action. And that is why Seth Budai is sitting in front of me right now. And we're going to get into that. But first of all, who are you, Seth Budai? And am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yeah, you definitely are. Um, yeah, thanks, Aaron. Um, I am uh, a lot of different things. <laughs> I, I like to label myself as a continually evolving human. Um, so <laughs> I... I really see myself as always changing, always adapting. I really believe that everybody should be that way. So uh, my whole mission and drive is definitely from a movement and health perspective, but it's really stepping outside of that and really even getting more into just being uncomfortable on a regular basis mm. and allowing that uncomfortableness to allow you to grow. And we that is a theme that comes up a lot in so far in this short-lived podcast is the power of discomfort, the, the, the resources that we can mine from it. Let's talk about how we met or how we met, which for me was kind of an uncomfortable thing, right? In my job, I wear JC Penny suits and I drive often in my Honda Accord lots of miles and I listen to a lot of podcasts, which is why I wanted to make a podcast. But there can be this really feeling of, of your body taking the damage of sitting that much and being in a car that much with artificial air. And, you know, you, of course, you get out and, and I'm a pharmaceutical sales rep by trade. So you get out of the car and you're in the elements and you go and interact with some humans and then you get back in your little pod, which is your little cell. And so... I got involved with a thing called MoveNat, which is what I'm going to really tie your hero's journey to. Your, your hero's journey, as you've already mentioned, is very broad. And yet, MoveNat is where I began my process of meeting you. 
So let's just define MoveNet. Do you you want to take a stab at that? Yeah, sure. So MoveNet is, to me, it's maybe even something different than an outsider's perspective looking in. But MoveNet to me was kind of the first revelation of being able to connect efficiency and movement to getting more out of your movement practice. So instead of just looking good in the mirror, it was something that was a lot more to it. There was, there was more meat to it. And that's really what attracted me to it. Um, from an outsider's perspective, looking in, it's probably a little bit more, um, I like to describe it as a way of rehabilitating us back to our natural, stronger state as human beings. So looking at it kind of as, you know, even a couple hundred years ago when we were, we had a lot more physical labor, we were outside a lot more, we were connected to both the agricultural cycles of, of growing things and even everything from when you wake up to when you go to sleep. Uh, most of that now is done through artificial light. It's not really done through the natural rhythm of the sun coming up, the sun coming down. And so really my exposure and my journey into MoveNet was being able to see that it really connected you back to that cycle. So I, I really love it from a lot of different angles and there's a lot of reasons why I was drawn to it. I would definitely say the biggest thing for me was getting back connected with myself. So it wasn't necessarily an external thing of, okay, I want to go out into the woods and I want to jump or I want to um, crawl. And these are all things that you'll see a lot within MoveNet. But for me, it was very internal. It was something where... I realized that the efficiency of my movement was something that I really cared a lot about. And I think some of that came from uh, kind of having a martial arts and a fighting background. And so I wanted to get better at that. But it was also kind of this thing of I kind of had a constant voice in my head of you can you can do more than you think you can. And that was an exposure to me of like these things that you're doing, you're you're good at them. You're okay at them, but there's a lot of things you could do to make you a lot better. And that really, to me, it took my ego out of the equation and it allowed me to look at myself in a more real light. Uh, there's a depth to things that goes so far beyond our surface level initial view of it. But we're talking, we're going very deep into this. That's what we're doing right now with this topic. Uh, MoveNat is spelled M-O-V-N-A-T, and I think that would you could use that term to mean natural movement. Correct. We could yeah. draw that. And your day job, your your trade, you are a personal trainer. So I'm actually I fulfill multiple roles. Mm -hmm. My my biggest title, I guess you could say, is head coach at Iron Tribe Fitness. It's in Knoxville, Tennessee. As well as being a head coach, I'm also a development coach. So I help to coach other coaches in how to coach. Mm. <laughs> and then um, I did personal training for several years and I still I still do some one-on-one -on -one training. I've done online training. I've done lots of different styles of training with individuals. So I've definitely gotten my hands wet in a lot of teaching capacity. But obviously, I'm definitely a student at heart. Clearly, with as many things, and I, I just want to read, this is one of the things that's on your Instagram. These are some of the, the categories that you are, are a part of. MoveNat Certified Trainer, Wim Hof Practitioner, Lover of Radical Honesty. So I, I definitely, if we have time within this episode, I would love to try to hit at least two of those aiming specifically at MoveNat and Radical Honesty, because I think we could go super deep with that. But right, MoveNet is about 
what you're what you're talking about but if we look at it at a surface level it really does look like people that are crawling jumping doing the movements that people would have more you know now we're a primarily sitting culture sit walk sit walk sit 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 probably and and yet that's how i got into it because i was doing so much sitting so I signed up for a MoveNat Level 1 certification course, and that is where you and I crossed paths. But how did you get on this path? Because, again, you, you've had a personal trainer background. Now you train other people that might be coaches. But did you always love being outside, for example? Because that's so much of, of seems what you love. Yeah, it's funny. So kind of like going all the way back to when I was really young, talking probably like between five and 10, my best friend at the time, me and him, our idea was of fun was just going out most of the time barefoot. We would just go out into his backyard, which was pretty wild. There, there wasn't, he lived in kind of bat the not bat country, but he lived in a very wild setting. And Mm so when we went out, you know, we would climb trees and we would play around. I mean, like a lot of people do. And I think that's kind of dying out, unfortunately, but I'm hoping that that will be revived back again with things like MoveNet. But it was definitely this thing of that was a sense of my, my soul is what I like to describe it as. So as I got a little bit older, I kind of saw the correlation and I, I always loved being outside. I always loved, it was something I'd done when I was really, really young, but then I got into the, I guess the development of martial arts and kind of moved from there back into the, uh, the idea of moving for a purpose. And so it kind of, when I was really young, it was just kind of like, you know, you're playing for playing sake. And Mm -hmm. I still like kind of returning back to that mentality, but I also got to see going through my my own journey is seeing that when I when I did things that were when I did things like a bicep curl, um, you know, I got a little bit into like the bodybuilding world where you're just kind of like working aesthetics. And when I did those things, it just felt like, what's the per like, why am I doing this? Like, it, what's the purpose of it? Like it? Mm. And to me, you know, like, uh, I mean, a lot of people want to see aesthetics. They want to see it look good in the mirror. But to me, it always felt very hollow. Like it just didn't feel like it really resonated with me well. So um, although I learned a lot of things from the people in that world, and I still have a lot of respect for the people in that world, it was definitely something where I wanted more than that. I, I saw there was benefit in in developing some strength, something that I didn't have a lot of as a kid, you know, kind of got bullied a lot as a kid just because I was I was a weaker individual. So I got into, you know, kind of strength training and most strength training at the time was bodybuilding focused. So I kind of did that thing because that was the norm. When I got a little bit more aware of what I wanted to do with building my own strength, that's when I got later into developing a more regular martial arts practice. So I did martial arts when I was really young, but then I left it and I kind of came back and revisited it when I was a little bit older, when I really had, I feel like a better understanding of why I was getting into it. Mm. What you're talking about, I think anybody that is listening that is at least of a certain age, because I agree, I think one of the real fears of the modern age is that play, playing outside for kids is becoming, at least from my own perspective as a former kindergarten teacher, it's uh, it's becoming less common and less 
innovative and less creative. And yet, if you're listening right now, you might be able to remember, again, if you're of a certain age, many of us included, that it used to be just business as usual, like you said. You, you didn't go out to develop a particular look. You played. You, you The movement component, the physical component, was just a means to the end. It was integrated in the activity itself. And yet, as you say, often when we become adults, physicality often, at least, this is not against bodybuilders because that is a specific sport. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And all respect due to them because they brought a lot of knowledge really into the front of thinking when we deal with physical training. hundred percent. I have a ton of respect and I, I have a lot of friends who are still very active in that world and um, I still pull and, and love a lot of the things they contribute. And one of the things I love to make the correlation with is that, you know, bodybuilders, you know, if you've been in the fitness world for any length of time, you're kind of seeing right now the big rise of going from going from traditional running shoes to like a more barefoot approach. It's funny because if you look back into like the old pictures of the bodybuilders, they were almost always barefoot when they trained. And so they already had that sense of like connectivity and sense of balance and what that actually does for your body when you're barefoot versus having shoes on especially when you're dealing with, you know, heavy loads that you're lifting. And the the real change in focus that can happen from, and isn't that interesting that the past often finds its way to the future when we see that, man, they were really, they were onto something there. But when we're, when we were kids, we often went to bed tired because we had done a lot, but it wasn't for a specific purpose beyond the enjoyment. And then as adults, the, sh- the focus seems to shift often to more of ourselves. A lot of the fitness paradigms that I see can be about, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to f- look better, feel better, but there can be such an, a, a focus on what it is doing to my appearance, to my physical. And I just see a, if you hold it in two hands, there's the playing outside, which was for one purpose. And then there is the trying to make my arms look bigger purpose. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing for me was understanding that you have to apply your five senses to everything you do. Mm. I think the problem with looking at the aesthetic is, is the term looking like you're only using your eyes to translate that into your body. Right? So if I want to look good, everything that's going to happen is all going to happen exterior. You know, it's going to happen on the exterior. So as far as like actual health, my body on the outside, maybe like the appearance of how it looks might look healthy. But then when we actually get into listening to our body and even something as simple as like, you know, you have multiple ways of interacting with the world, right? So something as simple as touch, how we touch and how we communicate with the world I think is a is of great value and something that we've really disconnected from. So instead of actually, you know, it's kind of like if you wore gloves and then you tried to, you know, do something like uh, chop up carrots or something like that, it's going to make it a lot more challenging because you don't have that same skill set in your hands. We don't necessarily take that same approach when it comes to our feet and thinking about how our feet articulate when we're moving and how we're interacting with the environment that we're around. And so I think because we've gotten disconnected from both the touch 
And then the, you know, the ears or the listening, I think those are two huge value pieces that allow us to be able to get into the mode of a more holistic practice or perspective. Talk more about that. How does that manifest? Because this is fascinating because I realize as what you're, what you just said made me think is that, and I almost want a good thing. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Oh, this is the point of the whole thing with this, these conversations. But so it all, it's almost like that's the, the, the other sense organ is our thoughts too. And it's, I, I would just, and I think certain religions and practices do actually view that, but the point being, how many senses do we engage with in modern life on a regular, I, I guess we do use all of them clearly, but I just was thinking, when do I ever really intentionally engage with say touch yeah. beyond picking up the knife to chop the carrots? I don't wear gloves, thankfully, but I don't engage with those in the depth that you're describing. Yeah, it's really interesting because, I mean, the thing that I think is the most valuable when it really comes to our overall health is looking at how we listen to our body. So more even than the environment and kind of our outside to in, but even looking at it in the inverse and looking from inside to out of like, okay, my body is telling me that it's probably it really needs movement. Like, okay, I've been a couch potato for a week. I need to get out. I need to move around. Like my body is telling me that. And then on the, on the other side, you also have like people who are really hardcore in the fitness world. They want to go, go, go. They want to do super high intensity exercise and they want to do it five days a week. And when their body tells them, Hey, you might want to, you know, you might want to slow it down a little bit. It's kind of this thing of, now we got to punish the body. We got to put mm. it into submission. And so instead of really honoring our senses, we, we disconnect from them. And it's kind of a way of getting what we want out of it. So instead of l- allowing our body to teach us what we need, it's no, we're telling our body what we need. <laughs> so it's this very, very big disconnect. And I think that's where a lot of the issues arise when it comes to someone starts out on a training program. And let's say they do it for a couple of weeks or a month and then they drop off. And I think the main reason they drop off is because there's a disconnect there of them not really knowing how to listen to their body and its natural rhythms. So when your body tells you, hey, today I need to go, go, go. I need to get a really hard. I need to get an intense workout. I need to lift super heavy weight. And then, you know, maybe the next day your body tells you like, all right, that was pretty intense. Let's slow it down. Let's go at like a. 40% pace, super chill, but you're still moving. And that's really what I see as trying to tap into those senses is tapping into allowing your body to tell you rather than you telling your body. It's almost like using your body as a car or a vehicle, a horse that we're riding as opposed to a map that is in front of us at all times. And I'm going to ask you, I guess, a bold, big question Take it wherever you'd like. Why do you think we're so cut off from our senses? Obviously, you are not uh, the, perhaps you cannot give the final answer on this, but my interest is how does this, because you're absolutely right. There's insanity workouts. There's destroy your abs, 47 gigawatts, ab ripper X. And then there's also the don't do anything. Why are we so cut off from our bodies, from what they are telling us, do you think, in all of our lives? Uh, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that everything that we interact with is artificial. 
So because we don't have living organisms that are interacting with us, we don't actually, we, there's no communication there because the things we're interacting with are not alive. So even the food that we eat, right, is is very stale of nutrients. It's very like the majority of processed food out there, even something very, very simple, like you go and get a chicken patty at, you know, whether it's a fast food joint or whether it's just like in the freezer at the grocery store. In order to get to that point, everything that both, you know, kind of the low quality chicken that it was sourced from, and then looking at the environment that that chicken was raised in, and then looking at all the processes to get it to where it's on the shelf, just puts it to where all the life that used to be in that is now all sucked out. So instead of getting something where, you know, okay, that animal was just slaughtered, and you're taking it home, you're roasting it up, you're getting all those nutrients from that. The longer it sits there, I mean, just with anything, the longer that something is exposed to heat and light, nutrients start to die, right? So the longer it sits there, the more those nutrients are just dying away. And so what you really get is no longer a live product. And so the because we're internalizing those things, it, it really becomes part of us. <laughs> like the in everything we put in us, and this is something we hear when we're little and then we don't really take it to heart, is like everything that you put inside you and a lot of people use it more from like a religious setting, like everything that goes into your eyes or your mouth or whatever becomes part of you. It's very, very true, you know, and it's something poignant. That, yeah, very much so. And so getting to where both the food that we're eating and the environment that we're interacting with, you know, you think about something as simple as what we go in to and sit on or whatnot at home when we're chilling, the door that we're interacting with, the carpet that we're interacting with we're completely cut off and separate from the weather. Like most of our windows are probably never open. Our windows might be like the blinds might be open, but even the window itself, like we don't get that circulation of air. We don't get those live things that are in our environment that we have access to, but we just choose to disconnect ourselves from them. So I think the more we do that, the more it sets the tone of disconnect, 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 disconnect. So when we do that, it just feeds into our, our sense of, feeling already disconnected and so we really need somebody or something to draw that out of us and you know for some people it's like a yoga practice uh, for some people it's a it's a more of a movement practice and for some people it's more of a meditation practice but there's always going to be something that helps you to tap back into that but it's definitely something that you have to be conscious of it's not something that just happens it's amazing because what you just pointed out is that we don't have to use our senses the way we used to. If what what is it? If you don't use something, it tends to what's the word? It um, atrophy. Exactly. When I had shoulder surgery and I took the you know you finally it's horribly painful and you are in this cast thing and you can't use it and then when you finally take all of the equipment off and the doctor okay's you you look and it's this little tiny useless little poor creature your arm or whatever it is and i think about that what a what a profound thing you're saying about how and we can talk about the lack of hunting how we don't have to when you go to the supermarket you everything is is there it's it's available and we don't have any context for all the energy that was required to get it there but i want to take it in an interesting direction with communication because we can all, it can be very hard, especially if you live in New York City or something, 
maybe if you are under some kind of an economic situation where it's not going to be as easy to, and we can talk about that later, maybe even yeah. is the, the things people can do regardless of the situation to re-engage the senses. But I want to talk about that very briefly or super, however you want to go with communication, because that what you were saying made me think about the prevalence of cell phones and how I heard a study the other day, and of course this is how people quote studies without offering the credit, but it was something like there are far fewer moments of uncomfortable silence because we can curate them, because we can stop those periods, we can fill in those gaps. Well, and I think even it even goes into like how you're describing uncomfortable silence. Like it's this feeling that any time that we're in in a position where we're not in control of the situation, it's uncomfortable, right? Mm. So so most of this artificial like stuff that I'm talking about, it's all things that we're in control of, right? We want to be thermoregulated in our home. We want to be able to be in control of the things that we eat. We, we don't want to have to just go out and whatever we kill, that's what we kill. Like we want to be able to have control over that. So it's it's not about choices. I think it's a really, I think a lot of people think it's about choices, but it's really about um, how much control we want over the situation. I think that goes hand in hand with the communication piece you're talking about mm. where we get in this mode of, it's kind of like why a lot of people want to text instead of call. Cause I think in a text you can control the situation, right? Cause yeah. like I can like type it out and like, oh, okay, I don't really like that. I'm going to delete something and then I'm going to type it out again and oh. then I'm going to delete it. But then when we're talking to somebody, you don't have the delete button. It's just whatever comes out, comes out. So, you know, we don't have that um, that same level of control. And I think that's where people really had the biggest hangups is that because they're not willing to surrender control, they're not really willing to uh, or not willing is kind of a bad word, but hesitant. Yeah, because they're hesitant to give up control. It's what's limiting them from really experiencing the world around them, including each other. Oh, isn't that a paradox, right? And and I, I will relate to what you're saying because how many of us have been, you're driving and you will use voice chat and say the wrong stuff and have to re-edit the post that you're trying, the, the, the message, but you'll, you'll, you will use that rather than calling them because it's uncomfortable because uh, 100%. it may not work out. What if, are they in a bad mood or I'm too tired? I, I can't handle that. And the paradoxical thing you're talking about is it requires that. It's actually what we started with. What you aim to do is to be uncomfortable, to grow. And yet that is the gateway to maybe what we need. Well, and you think about like, uh, you know, you plant a seed and it's, I, I like to use the analogy of a seed because, uh, you know, maybe a lot of people haven't planted a seed. And so it's like a perfect analogy because it's like the very thing that I'm describing is something that a lot of people have not done. But when you plant a seed, you know, it's a hard shell and in order for it to grow, it's got to burst out of that shell. Right. So same thing with like a chicken egg. Right. That chicken has to come out of the shell. So the shell is the the comfort. Right. It's just like being in the womb. Right. You have this sense of like everything's taken care of. You know, I don't have to worry about any. I don't, I've got my food supply. I've got everything. But in order to grow, we've got to move past that stage, you know, um, so we've got to break out of the shell. We've got to, you know, break out of the seed, whatever it is, in order to actually start both growing and also being able to procure giving what we have to the rest of the world. Oh, talk more about that. Giving 
Yeah. So, you know, when we, when we really embrace that discomfort, it's something that because it's very rare, it's something that's, that's magnetic, right? So when people see that happen in someone, it's automatically like, well, what is that person doing? Or what does that person have? Because it's, it's something that's so rare, you don't see it a lot. And so when someone does embrace that uncomfortableness, you know, sometimes it can launch them into the stratosphere because it's like this person is like a superhuman, right. you know, a great example of it is Wim Hof. Like, uh, I don't know if your listeners know who Wim Hof is, but in case you don't, Wim Hof is known as the Iceman. He's broken like 25 world records. He's done incredible things, has, you know, done underwater ice swims that are crazy long, has taken ice baths that are like multiple hours long. He's ran marathons in the desert. I mean, climb Mount is, Everest in shorts. Yeah. Is I that mean, correct? Yeah. He like, yeah. I mean, tons and tons of things that are just like mind blowing. One of the things I love that he says is he says, be your own guru. And it's very mm. much that what he is passing on is what he has done. It's not like, Oh, he is telling me something and that's what I'm getting from it. It's no, this is something you have to do yourself. And when you do, it unlocks that ability to be superhuman. And it's an ability we all have. It's just an ability that for some of us is down really, really deep. And we have to dig at it. We've got to get to it before we can really feel the presence of it. And it could be atrophied, like the example of my arm when I pulled it out. It could be this little poor arm that is i had to do you know lots of physical therapy to get to where that arm could work again absolutely yeah Did i you... think i think the human organism is that way mm. so when you think about humans as a species and we think about how we have gotten so disconnected and gotten disproportionate and atrophied our bodies and atrophied our mind and and all this has happened like i said kind of as a as a means of controlling things, but it's, it's happened over time. And so now if we want to reestablish or reawaken that it's going to take some major steps, it's not just going to happen. And, and that's one of the things that really, to me was eye opening about MoveNet in particular was that MoveNet was an approach where it didn't matter where you were in your physical capabilities, you were going to be challenged both in those and your mental, spiritual, every, I mean, everything was encompassed in it. So when you went out and you did, you performed a, a task or a movement, it was looking at this movement as both the, I love the terminology. They, they talk about contextual demands all the time and contextual demands mean environmental or situational demands. And it's things we never really talk about in a gym setting because our environment is sterile. But when we have a natural environment, we have to constantly think about how the environment plays a role on how we move. Just being able to perform a jump is one thing, but then how about you're performing a jump while it's raining and you're performing it from a really slick, mossy rock onto a really muddy environment, right? Mm -hmm. So how those things need to adapt and change is mind-blowingly complex. So there's just so many different dynamics and different ways that you could take it. And I think that's really what people need is that stimulus. And that's what helps you get back to that is that the more you grow and feed that stimulus, the more you're able to get in the mode of looking more internal. Like I was stating at like more like the beginning of the interview, like I'm really looking at you from 
from the out, you know, from the inside out where you're looking at like how your body is actually what it's telling you and, and how to listen to that and how to adapt to that as it tells you things. Having kind of an intuitive feel for your spaceship that is not, again, that's not a good metaphor for it. Perhaps your map that is in front of you at all times. This is a great segue into MoveNet, but I just want to say before we go there, I love what you said about when someone decides to be uncomfortable and a word that is highly used nowadays uh, is vulnerable. The, the willingness to be vulnerable is in scarcity. And that is why people like shame researcher Brene Brown, who came out with a book called The Wisdom of, or The Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly. She's got some great stuff. You, so you, you're familiar a- with absolutely, her. Absolutely, yeah. And so sure. the whole thing of like, when we have these important people that stand up and bring value to the state of being vulnerable, which is essentially doing the opposite of what we've been talking about, which is curating your environment your message, what you're putting out there. And it is so powerful. It's almost like a cheat code in life. When it, And that's why doing a podcast, right now we push record and we do not know where this is going to go. And this is like riding a surfboard. And that's why I would recommend anybody that wants to invest the time, this is an excellent practice. Not to mention though, anybody, like you said, when we see someone not, I think we've gotten it into success. That's where it was. Success was lauded as the greatest thing. And it is still highly important. And yet vulnerability trying, you know, that Roosevelt speech, the person in the arena. And and I think you nailed it too when you said success, right, is like the the goal, but we never really, like we talk about this roadmap to success from a perspective of controlling the situation Mm. you know yes where most of the people who have been very successful in their lives they they were able to kind of give over to what their intuition was telling them right so most of the people that have these big turning moments in their life it was i felt this pull like i really needed to do this and when i did everything happened right for me, you know, and it's like this thing of, yeah, well, your body knows and your you know, mind and everything. And when I say body, I really mean everything about you. And so, and it really knows what you need and it really knows how to navigate you through this world. But we've gotten in this like really, really bad habit of disconnecting and thinking that we can just work from more of our, our logical brain or more from our prefrontal cortex, right? And, and be able to like think through logically, uh, does this make sense? Does this make sense? But really, I, I just feel like that's a very limited way of looking at the world. And it's a tool, but to onboard, to engage and bring our system up where it's almost like I'm going to use a Power Rangers analogy. That was not intended, but hey, that's we're in the moment. We're we're the, none of this is planned. But in Power Rangers, it was always annoying because it was about. And I haven't seen the new one, so if, or if you love the old one or the new one, then I respect you. I'm not hating on Power Rangers, but they they always had to go to their next form. You know, they would say it's morphin time. They'd have some huge, gigantic, evil monster in the city. And then they would say, they'd look at each other, they'd nod knowingly, and they would say, you know what, it's morphin' time. And they would morph, and they'd be an alright version of 
the fighting capabilities. And but then, not, not the last stage, though. <laughs> the mega, what, what was it called? Uh, mega, it's Mega Morphin Ranger chi- yeah. time or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. So they would, in, the point being that maybe we need to engage our own versions of our megazons or whatever they were called so there you go power rangers and philosophy awesome awesome. let's let's talk about your entryway though because you now walk with this uh skill set of move nat of natural movement but it seems like it began perhaps when you were a kid with martial arts that seems like that was an on-ramp for you so talk about that origin story so you know the origin story for me is really strange in a lot of ways and partially because I think for a lot of my life, I, you know, we kind of talk about living multiple lives, right? But we don't really always talk about how a lot of us are living like two or three different lives at the same time. And that's like kind of how I felt like when I was growing up, like I was doing, I had lots of interests. So like I wanted to do things, but I also wanted to do other things, but I was very one track minded. So it was almost like I had to switch gears and say like, okay, I'm going to be doing this and then switch gears again and say, okay, I'm going to be doing this. And so I started out, you know, just playing outside. But then as, you know, as my mom saw like this energy, it needs to be taken somewhere, you know? And so she gave me the ability of, of, you know, uh, going to my first like karate class. So I started in like Okinawan karate, which is like, I wouldn't say the quintessential karate, but it's definitely a more popular form of martial art that most people would know. And that that stage was a lot of learning how to move my body. And it was a cool like um, I don't know if it was an experiment. I, I don't know how to word it necessarily, but it was a really cool way of me being able to feel confident about how I moved my body, feel confident about what I could do. And by the way, I was terrible at sparring. I was oh, I was interesting. The, I was the kid that was like I was the forms guy, you know, like I um, which if you know martial arts well, you know, there's pretty much a very split world, right? You have like the fighting world and then you have the forms world, the katas and the absolutely. And so I was definitely all about the katas and, you know, I could take home some trophies and I, I would do really well with that. But I just I was terrible when I like I it freaked me out, like being in contact with another human being one to one. This is this. We got into this with the Cliff Fonseca episode. The competition is not the football team versus the other football team, the defense versus the, it is you against the other person. Absolutely. hundred percent. And so it took me from that into um, going from more. I, I realized there was an L there's something I'm missing. Right. So, and I thought it was strength. Like I really thought that, Oh, the reason I like get freaked out. I don't like it is because like I, I, you know, I was a pretty weak kid growing up. Like it didn't have a lot of strength. So, you know, I got a pull-up bar at home. I started doing pull-ups like on a regular basis. I was like, you know, I, I read about how a Navy SEAL could do 36 pull-ups, like an average Navy SEAL could do 36 pull-ups. So I was like, that's my goal. I want to be able to do 36 pull-ups. So every single day I do pull-ups, try and get stronger. And so as I was doing that, you know, that's kind of like when I, my cousin introduced me to like lifting weights. And so I got like my first weight set when I was like, 13 probably. And I set it up in, in, uh, the extra room we had in our house and I, you know, I was pumping iron every day trying to get strong. And, but the strength, again, it was never really the lens that so many people get, uh, get pulled into. It wasn't the lens of like, I want to make my biceps big. It was the lens of like, I want to be strong. I want to feel strong. I want to feel secure in who I am. 
it was kind of like it got me a lot stronger. I'm not saying that, but it definitely was something that over time was something that I look back at and just feel like it was uh, it was hollow in a lot of ways. Like there was a lot of things that I really wanted out of it that I didn't really know how to go about it. So I didn't I wasn't able to achieve it out of it. So that that took me in the direction of getting hooked up with a Kung Fu instructor. And that Kung Fu instructor became, I mean, he's still considered like I, he's still like one of my mentors. He's probably the biggest mentor in my life of somebody who's really radically changed both the way I think, the way I moved. Um, I mean, I can't say enough good things about my Kung Fu instructor. I mean, I love him so much. Um, he's actually my father-in-law now. So um, oh, wow. it was kind of a cool like mesh of worlds there. Cause my wife grew up doing martial arts because her dad was a Kung Fu instructor. And then I got hooked up and started training privately with him. And, and we really developed our own relationship outside of the relationship of me and my, my current wife, you know? So it was a, uh, definitely a dynamic that was very special to me and something that I, I think that probably very few people have ever experienced. Oh, wow. Like I feel like, so I know, I don't know you that well. That's one of the beauties of, of this going into MoveNet like I did is that we struck a pretty quick friendship because you helped and we can talk about what that he was actually essentially already a high level person within this regime regime this uh (laughs) (laughs) this methodology uh and Power Rangers plus regimes no but but he is that gonna be the title of the episode I I, perhaps perhaps (laughs) it definitely will make people wonder but uh, he was really good at it. He really helped me. But I feel like having known you briefly, but well, is this is like the end of the movie where you find out the cool uh, reveal. Like, what a neat thing. Your your wife is the daughter of your great mentor. This feels truly like, and, and this really is following, as we talk about on this podcast, the hero's journey. The classic, uh, you grasp onto this path and then if you're lucky, you can find the teacher. And I think you've spoken before about the lack. This also follows our earlier conversation about control. And we have a lack of mentors sometimes. And a lack of culture that there is such a culture of like, I did it on my own. I rose up. I And of course, I believe that no one really does it on their own within perhaps some exceptions, but talk more. What were the characteristics? What were the experiences? What any way you want to go with this teacher character that became your father-in-law? Yeah. So, um, a lot of different things that unraveled itself from that relationship. But I think one of the biggest was that, so I was, was considered a closed door disciple, which means that I was a private student that pretty much predominantly, that's all I worked was private. So, um, you know, my FaceTime with my instructor was crazy high. Like we would train five or six days a week, every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. And we got to obviously know each other really, really well. And he really got to know me. Uh, you know, outside of the martial arts too, because of me dating his daughter. And so, you know, it's one of those people too, that had an effect on my life of really being able to take me into me being able to embrace like a confidence about myself that I had never had before. So it was one of those things where he really taught me the fighting aspect, kind of the thing that I was missing in the karate world was, and not 
not that karate doesn't cover that because I know some incredible karate people that are fighters and they're sure. incredible, but um, just something I didn't get from that. And so the fighting world was something that because I kind of grew up kind of feeling very weak and stuff, he gave me the power, right? So he made me feel powerful and that power led me into feeling like I can be vulnerable. So it was like ah. that, that I think was the switch of like saying like out of this power comes like a taking down of power or giving away a power where it's like, you know, the most powerful people in the world are the people that, don't consider themselves powerful almost you know like it's it's the people like the the wim hoffs or erwan lacour who founded Movnat, or you know these people who are like at this really elevated status. gandhi yeah like people who are just incredible teachers and you know things they are sharing with the world and the reason it's so powerful is because they're empowering others by like being vulnerable um and it's just a it's an interesting concept and and something that I think a good teacher is always going to teach is how to, how to be vulnerable because that's really where your power comes from. And, and that's something that I think Brene Brown does really, really well. And I've listened to that Ted talk that she does where she basically gets super vulnerable or uh, yeah, it's on a Ted talk where she gets super, super vulnerable in real time. Yeah. And it's just, and you can tell like the energy in the room changes. It's like, she has everybody at the beck and call of her will. Like, I don't know if she would place it that way, but it definitely like feels like you could feel the power there. Yeah. And so there is just so much power in this um, dropping your guard. And, and I think the dropping your guard sometimes only comes from feeling powerful at first. So it's kind of this weird, like they almost have to coexist together. Like you, you have to have this sense of like feeling like you are worth something. And I think that's kind of where a lot of it comes from is like, for me, strength was worth. It was kind of like the stronger I got, the more I valued myself and the more I valued myself, the more I was able to be vulnerable with myself. So it was kind of this weird, like um, interweaving of powerful versus like taking away of power because uh, the more power you have, the more you can give away. And so technically the more vulnerable you can get. So if you don't have power to begin with, can you really get vulnerable? Cause you don't really have anything to give away. <laughs> so. What a, what a incredible paradox, right? That you, to be, you know, we, we are so afraid of being weak, of losing, of failing. There's such a, a, and for whatever reason, but isn't that interesting? The only way to be able to uh, nurture and enjoy the fruits of vulnerability is that perhaps you have to be strong first. The only way to be I don't want to say weak, but to be open is maybe to be strong first. I, I really like, you know, kind of looking at the analogy of joy and sadness. And if you look at like, okay, somebody who's experienced this really raw sadness out of their whatever, out of their life or out of an experience they've had, that person can experience joy so much more than someone who's never experienced that really deep sadness. And it's, it's one of those things where, and I'm not saying that somebody who has experienced really bad sadness, maybe they were really limited and maybe they could only experience a little bit, but they have the capability to experience a lot more because they've experienced it on the other side. So it's kind of like the balancing out of scales where, you know, the further on one end you go, the further on the other end you're able to go. So it's kind of like a lever and you're about, you know, you're, you're playing this balancing act almost. 
Why do you think that becoming stronger, and we see this manifested, Cliff Fonseca said in his episode, I'd never been good at anything before. And his whole thing about when, and if you haven't listened to that episode, I don't know, watch out for some spoilers right it's, now. But It's a great episode, too. That I, was I, probably one of my favorite episodes. I, I love, so and when he, he competed, he lost every match the first time, and he covers his mirrors because it's so shameful to, and of course, we can dig in specifically with him as to why, but why do you think that becoming physically stronger or physically more component, uh, having physical more competence makes us more mentally, spiritually, more feeling like we have worth? Why do you think there's that relationship? I think it's because partially because the world values strength. So I, I think it's not, I think a lot of it is cultural. So it's like um, kind of one of those things where, you know, if you see somebody who's, who's famous, right? There, there are famous people who are super uh, skinny or there's, you know, famous people who are maybe a little overweight or there's famous people who are in like really, really good ripped shape. But if you think about most of the people who like really are seen as like the A-class celebrities, like the top dogs in that world, it's always people that have a lot of physical strength. Like, and and I think some of it is like, yeah, they have the aesthetics, like they look strong, but I think they have a lot of, um, you know, mental and physical and emotional, probably spiritual strength in order to be able to even exist in that world because it is so chaotic. So I think you know, the, the lens of being in the world that we're in, it requires us to have a certain level of strength. And the more strength we have, the more we're almost valued, which is kind of a, it's kind of sad that it is that way. But, um, I don't think that, you know, just because it's sad that it is that way. I think that, I think in some ways it very much is. So I think getting to where we feel more comfortable and confident of who we are, and strength is kind of a weird word because there's a lot of different ways that someone can exhibit strength. hundred percent. Right? So we're not talking like, okay, you got really big biceps. So you're strong. Like there's a lot. Of, I mean, everything from self-control can be a strength to someone, you know, having an incredible musical talent can be a strength, you know? So there's lots of different ways that we can, you know, look at strength, but I think it's definitely something that's valued super, super high in our world. And because of that, it becomes this thing of, you know, you almost have to feel validated before you can like put your guard down. And so it's like this validation almost gives you the ability to say like, okay, now I can be more myself. <laughs> and I think this is true with a lot of people that get into like, uh, like celebrities that, you know, they kind of like rise into stardom and then it looks like they quote unquote have a fall in, you know, like you look at like a Britney Spears kind of thing where it's like, they, they look like they have like a, a decent, but really I think a lot of that is, there, there's a piece of themselves that's not being fully aware. And so when something like that happens, it kind of comes to the forefront. It's not because that person is weak in any way. It's because they lack the ability to, to be in all those, all those elements at one time or shadows at one time. I don't know. What engaging a good all of kind of like what you we were talking about, where engaging all of the senses, engaging all of your potentials, at that, at that moment to be able to, to deal. It's almost like I, I, the image that I'm seeing in my mind right now is, is almost like life is a metaphor where we are 
running through a field with a hang glider. And as we we're, we're kind of building to the, the, the vulnerabilities that we take, the risks that we take. And maybe that's why if we don't take chances, then we're super bored because we're running around with a hang glider, but it's like, Hey man, what's up? What are you just going to keep running with your hang glider? Like in kind of the point to jump off and glide a little bit. And, and yet if we jump off and glide and then our wing has not been, we, we have not patched up or, or built up half of the hang gliding set, then we're going to crash because our, our unit was not stable when we leapt off the cliff. Yeah, and I think it goes multiple directions with that too, because you think about, so the person that's saying that to the person running off the cliff is also like, they're kind of like the cultural representation of our society, right? So they're like telling you like, well, what are you doing? You know, like this kind of like, oh, you're weird. Like you're like, because, and I think some of that comes from the fact that a lot of the people who are pointing those things out is because they're never really taking a risk oh. and strength takes, I mean, you have to have strength to take risks, right? So when I'm talking about all this, all this strength, quote unquote, strength work, it's really working on the ability to step into that uncomfortable mode and take a risk, you know? So even something like strength is taking a risk. So you think about uh, lifting a weight up off the ground, you are taking a risk anytime you lift a weight. Now, the risk might be super small. It might be super high, depending on what the weight is and how good you are, but you're taking a risk nonetheless. And I think that's the biggest thing is that, you know, risk in our society is not something that we we see a lot of. And the people who we do see, we either see hyper success or hyper failure. We very rarely see people who are like kind of willing to like go both ways. Like, you know, maybe I fail at this one. Maybe I succeed at this one. And and the people who are that way end up becoming the incredible teachers, like the people that you can really absorb and learn everything from, because it's like, those are the people who really like lived a life. They really took risks and some of them failed and some of them succeeded. And, you know, it worked out really good in some areas. And I think like David Blaine is a good example. Like, I think he's taken some incredible risks and some of them have paid off and some of them haven't. Like he's had some experiments and some things that he's done that have failed. And like, it's beautiful to the fact that he is willing to do that and do it with everybody watching him. And like, if I make it, I make it. And I'm going to have in my mind that I'm going to make it. But it's like, at the end of the day, like if it doesn't happen, it doesn't, he doesn't come crashing to the ground. Like he, he's still a thing. Like everybody knows who David Blaine is. You know, it's like, Mm. he's still a very famous icon and incredible uh, magician and can do incredible things, even with his body that are even outside of the scope of uh, quote unquote magic, you know? So (laughs) No, it's it's really cool. We've been talking. We've really been holding perhaps two poles of success on one hand and vulnerability on another. But it's almost like you can reframe success to be vulnerability. So if success, let's just use the example of asking the person that works at the bookstore that you think looks cute and you've wanted to ask them, and you're single, and but you're scared, and and if you go well. What if they reject me if I walk up to them? 
Well, that's considering success them saying yes or them not thinking that you're weird and laughing at you or whatever your worst case scenario. But what if success was merely the moment where shaking, terrified, with your heart pounding, you stumble across the room and you do it? What if doing it, trying it, 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 it alone is success, regardless of whatever the particular outcome is? Because when you do those kinds of things in life and it can be anything that's a that's a particularly scary one recording a podcast whatever getting good at something but that night when you have done that thing i i've experienced that even when it doesn't go well it's almost like a bolt of lightning shoots through your entire body because hey you you put it on the line and it's almost like that can create a sense of being proud of oneself if you don't make the rejection a failure if you make merely the act of being vulnerable itself the success oh absolutely yeah i mean i think that's i think that it kind of hits the nail on the head for sure it's uh it's one of those things where uh, sometimes it's hard to culminate all that into really understanding like an approach that's practical and that someone can do but i think that really like goes a long way into someone's own personal practice of how they could potentially do it I think the the people that I, I've been able to be around have fostered that too within me because I, I realize that what I see as myself is continually evolving, right? And so I want other people around me to view me as that so that I have the space to be vulnerable and change my mind and go in different directions. And so, um, you know, I'll be going later this year, I'll be going for my level three certification and move nat. And it's one of those things that's, it's something in my life that's been a goal of mine uh, for a long, for a while now, uh, pretty much since I found out about MoveNet. And it's been one of those things where it's scary because I don't know if I can pass it. You know, it's ah, and yeah. it's and you know I've been you know I've been very lucky slash good at a lot of things within the fitness world, and so you know taking a physical fitness test or taking some type of test, you know, in my world has been something that's like, it's okay. Like I might be a little nervous about it, but to me, the level three certification is like, this is like, um, this is like kind of like a culmination of feeling like I've got to, I've both got to bring it and everybody's going to see your rawest version of yourself. Because when you're tested in a way that is very very practical and you're tested in more like natural environments and you're tested with things that are very complex every single person it doesn't matter how good at fitness you are like Mm -hmm. you're you're talking about things where you have to be constantly adaptable and so some of those things you're probably not going to be that great at but like being okay with stripping that vulnerability down and i think if I was to go for it earlier on of like first finding out about MoveNet and I said like, oh, I'm just going to do the level two level or level one, level two, and then I'm going to go for level three. I think if I would have done it that way, it would have been, I would not have really, I probably wouldn't have passed for one, but I feel like I wouldn't have really been at a place where I could um, reflect and learn what I think I really need to learn from it. So that's what I'm really, um, I'm really excited about it, but I'm also like really nervous about it. And it's like one of those things where I haven't had a lot of moments in my life other than, you know, like one of the full contact fights I did in Texas or a couple other things that I've done in my life where like, I have that just very like, this is like, this is like a big step for me. Like I really want it to go out go well, you know? And so being vulnerable in that way, I think is something that I, 
trying to get more comfortable with, but it's like always something that's going to be uncomfortable and you just have to kind of be willing to sit in that uncomfortable space. That's that's the point, right? Like the point is like we people use these terms like becoming uncomfortable or becoming comfortable with discomfort, but that doesn't mean becoming comfortable. Like that sounds great if you're not doing something uncomfortable. What it really means is being willing to feel the burning sensation in your gut of uncertainty, absolutely, of, of stakes, true stakes that matter to you, and that's why you. That's when you know you have a true dragon. That is worthy of, or whatever metaphor you want to use, if you don't like dragons. But um, I love dragons. Okay. Well, hey, we we agree on the the point of dragons. Thanks so much for listening. I love any time on this podcast when the conversation can take these kinds of wide ranging juxtapositions of something like physical strength, and then how that relates to one's ability to be vulnerable in this life. So I hope you enjoyed part one with Seth Budai. Again, if you want to check out his workshop, I will have information and links on epicordinarylives.com. Until then, have a great day. I'll see you next week.